Have feminists always been pro-prostitution? Since when has supporting pornography been considered a pro-sex feminist position? And why has feminism seemingly become a catch-all for any and all gender equality issues? Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Joni Mitchell's Sex Kills. And the oil spills. And sex sells everything. Sex Tonight's episode, Unmanning Sex. Our guest, Megan Murphy, is the founder and editor of the online feminist media outlet Feminist Current. She'll lead us through the re-radicalizing of feminism starting with a tour through the individualized, all-inclusive, pro-capitalism, third-wave, or liberal feminism that came up in the 90s, along with neoliberalism's rise in the left, and the fights against patriarchy that the popular quote-unquote feminism won't take on, including pornography and prostitution. In contrast, Murphy supports second-wave or radical feminism, which she prefers to simply call feminism, because it's about supporting women's rights and their struggle against the specific forces that disempower, abuse, and marginalize females. Unmanning Sex with Megan Murphy. Tonight's Interchange on WFHB. I tend to just describe myself as a feminist um, and a socialist, actually. Mm-hmm. And that's because I feel frustrated that the definition of feminism has become so, you know, watered down. You know, like as much as, as people these days like to say, you know, feminism is for everybody and feminism is whatever each individual makes of it. Um, you know, feminism, like every other political movement, has a particular goal and meaning and and definition and and that definition is a radical feminist definition if you want to call it that but i prefer just to call it feminist <laughs> because that's what it is <laughs> so well, i i feel frustrated that there's this right. idea that there's like you know it, we we need we need terminology to to describe what we're talking about so i do talk about liberal feminism in a critical way sometimes but i also feel like liberal feminism just isn't really feminism you know to me anything that anything that isn't um, aimed at challenging the system of patriarchy mm-hmm. is not feminism. That's just something else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's an interesting thing for me. I've been working on some things with W.E.B. Du Bois and trying to watch his the way he kind of worked through some of these understandings himself. What Du Bois tried to understand was that his reformism just worked within the system as it is, and so was always going to be exploited by capitalism primarily, uh, uh, seeing racism as also a part of that capitalist system for for his era, I suppose. But also it seems that reformism is the way in which we just allow things to be under different terminology. Um, mm-hmm. And so he moved into a revolutionary idea of how he how he needed to approach race and capitalism and economic systems. And it seems to me something ab- about this seems like that to me. There's a when you say radical for Du Bois, it might be revolutionary. Right. Yeah, totally. So that's what liberal feminism does. Right. Like it wants to work within a capitalist system, a mm-hmm. patriarchal system to sort of make things 
feel slightly better to certain individuals. Um, so it's not focused on collective liberation for all women. It's not focused on undoing the system as a whole. When we're talking about radical feminism, it just means to get at the root. What we want to do as radical feminists is to figure out what it is that, you know, how patriarchy works, why it exists, and undo it, not just sort of um, try to change a few things here and there, um, not try to, you know, put a sheen on it, not try to, you know, change the language so that maybe it, it feels a bit more equitable or or woman friendly or whatever. So yeah, so that's, that's the difference between radical and liberal feminism. And, you know, and I also, you know, I, I also talk about it in terms of waves, what I what I call liberal feminism today, I also call third wave feminism, which is, you know, the kind of feminism that um, sprang up in the 90s after um, second wave feminism, which is where, you know, radical feminism came from, and all the you know, challenges to pornography and prostitution, the the reproductive rights uh, movement, etc. But third wave feminism took this this liberal approach, or they're primarily focused on individual empowerment. Mm. Um, so the idea that if something that a woman was doing was making her personally feel good, or what what she might call empowering then that was good. And that was sort of unchallengeable and unquestionable because that was her choice. Um, and, and she liked to do it and she wanted to do it. So that was no one else's business. You know, it's almost, it's like a libertarian approach in many ways too, right? Yeah. It smacks, right. Uh, smacks of the, the neoliberal approach as well. When we, we see each other as you know, single actors of our own incorporated selves in a lot of ways. And, and as you're talking about it in terms of those eras, those time frames 90s is a is the smack dab in the middle of where we really get started in that neoliberal uh space where people are trying to sell themselves and it's a literal thing we uh, i hope to deal with in the program obviously with prostitution and pornography as well but try to understand the ways in which that kind of perspective you know the i guess i guess it's the you know a commonplace that in capitalism everything is for sale uh the the neoliberal perspective is that you are the you are the thing for sale, right? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, that everything is commodifiable. So, so every every individual, every everybody is commodifiable as an individual, but also, you know, even our movements are commodifiable. Right. So, it's that idea that feminism is something that should be marketable, um, that you should be able to kind of popularize and sell and you know rebrand. So that so that more people want to buy it, right? <laughs> right? Like all yeah. that stuff, and then yeah, like you say, like it's like that idea that capitalism will empower people, which right. is like a very neoliberal idea. Like it's like okay, well, if she's making money off of this thing that she's doing, then naturally it's empowering, which is you know a ridiculous argument for any <laughs> leftist or progressive person to make. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. We're speaking with Megan Murphy, who runs the online media outlet Feminist Current, about radical feminism. 
Well, uh, I heard a, a really good interview, a podcast you did, and I'm, I'm blanking on the person's name, but it was, uh, the, I guess it was a professor at University of Melbourne. Oh, was uh, it Sheila Jeffries? Yeah, yeah. That one was really, really fascinating mm-hmm. to me, just as much because of the way she talked about how these um, feminist politics co-opted by identity politics and, and how it, and I think it was with uh, your interview with Robert Jensen, too, just talking about how when things get institutionalized, they, they no longer have the teeth they had before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we start talking about um, identity as the end-all be-all of of politics, I mean, we can't get anywhere because we have to, you know, like if we're not looking at oppression as something that happens in a systematic way and on a class basis, I just don't see how we can possibly call ourselves a movement Mm. or, and I don't see how that movement can really get anywhere if we're all sort of talking about our individual experiences and personal identities as, as, you know, if we're letting that sort of lead our politics, which is uh, sort of silly. Maybe it's not intentional as an institution, but the institution seems to prompt it. These, these ways in which uh, co-opting that particular fight uh, sectioned off into other kinds of people that need protection and and help. And uh, what was fascinating about that was the idea that as a, as a feminist uh, that you have to maintain that sort of, exclusionary idea we we have to fight for this one thing we can't fight for everything and every every group that's out uh, of favor or being harmed or isn't protected by law or things of that nature so it was just an interesting um thing i hadn't really thought too much about uh, you know i live within a uh, university town myself and and obviously there's women's studies but there are gender studies and, and queer studies and um i don't i don't know that there are any other like what where women's studies went to as as I think it was uh, your guest talked about the disappearance of that particular thing as well. Yeah, I mean there yeah, so there's this idea that feminism is supposed to address everything and everyone. And I don't feel like that's expected of other movements. Hmm. Um, you know, feminism is about liberating women as a class from patriarchal oppression, you know, women as a class are the group of people who are oppressed under patriarchy. It doesn't mean that other people in our culture don't suffer or aren't oppressed. It just means that that's, that's our specific fight and our specific analysis. But for whatever reason, I think the reason is sexism, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, we're, we're expected to talk about everything and make sure everyone feels welcome and included, make sure nobody feels left out or offended by our movement. Um, which is, you know, what is broadly expected of women, you know, women are socialized to think about everyone else first and to think about everyone else's feelings first and to ensure that everyone feels comfortable and that people don't feel offended. You know, girls are taught to be polite. Um, and so I, I don't think it's just a coincidence that that same idea has been, um, pushed onto feminists. But I mean, it's, what's sad is that so many, so many women have gone for it. You know, like I was at a, like it was a week long event around, uh, women, and feminism at a university uh, last month. And I was told that they had done the event the year before and that some of the male professors had complained that they felt left out by the language. Mm. Um, 
because it was a feminist event. So the language was around women explicitly and they felt left out by that. So the following year, this year, they decided to redefine feminism so that it was more inclusive of men, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Nice. Like and these were the women's studies professors who had gone for this. They're like, oh well, some of the male professors complained last year, and I was like, what? Like, who cares? Like, what? Who cares if the male professors complain? Like, I don't care if men feel left out of feminism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Strange times. Yeah. I feel like gender studies departments are doing that. You know, like mm-hmm. I feel like that thing is sort of rooted in the in in the university setting because they've started to replace women's studies departments with gender studies departments. And gender gender studies is a more is more inclusive language than women's studies, you know, because that can include obviously men. It can include anyone. And yeah. um it's this idea that just to focus on women is, you know, old fashioned it's unimportant, you know, like as if women aren't oppressed right. anymore. Um, it's and it's uh, somehow offensive to people that anyone would want to just focus specifically on the plight of women. Well, it's pretty fascinating that to me it actually it does exactly, um, I, I guess, what it's intended to do, which it seems to me neutralize it and actually turn it back into a male perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And to sort of sort of make the language feel more comfortable to people, which, I mean, that's just not the point of radical movements. The point of radical movements isn't to make everybody feel comfortable. I mean, obviously, if you're pushing back against the status quo, some people are going to feel uncomfortable, particularly the people who are in the privileged class who are oppressing the marginalized class, (laughs) right? (laughs) i.e. men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're we're a sad lot, we men. <laughs> We've got it so bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know what? Let's uh, let's turn to two specifics. Actually, today I wanted to the two P's on our list: prostitution and pornography. Uh, they are uh, perennial in some sense, or they seem to continue to to float in and out of um, of where we argue. Prostitution is is one that I've. I've had to do a crash course in myself. It's not something I ever really thought much about and, and you know, whatever that means for my own education and human rights or, or what it means to be a person in this world, but also pornography. And as, uh, as you know, I think these both sit within that, that situation where we talk about a male-dominated world where men want a particular thing and have a way to get it. Um, and that thing being... Well, I use the terminology thing there, but that's how it is, right? An objectified thing to, to, uh, to I guess, satisfy you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a woman who isn't really human. Right. There's, yeah, there's no need for the, the human part in that equation. It's partly why I'm always sort of shocked by the, the constant, you know, uh, robot fantasies of... I'm not shocked by them. They're, they're the basic sense for how our culture seems to put the sex object, the woman into mm-hmm. that robot fantasy you know let's just get rid let's just get rid of women and make them mm-hmm. all robots yeah the ideal woman a robot right right, right, <laughs> right. yeah that's kind of how it seems <laughs> well let's let's then look at prostitution because we just had a um an interview with uh, george lakey who, who wrote a book on you know the economic world of uh, nordic countries and trying to understand how they they did their best to change their inequality and poverty due to economic elites being in charge of things like we have today. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk about the Nordic model, which I thought you would helpfully explain to us and and try to help us understand. Right. So the Nordic model was 
uh, something that was enacted in Sweden in 1999. They did decades and decades of research into prostitution, so talking to people in prostitution, um, which had never really been done before on a large scale. And what they decided was to decriminalize people who sell sex, who are mostly women, not all women, but, you know, about 80%, and to criminalize only the people who are doing the exploiting, so the pimps and johns um, and brothel owners. And on top of that, to create exiting services, you know, to support women who want to leave the industry. And, you know, the model has succeeded in reducing the number of men who buy sex. But, you know, moreover, it's, it's changed social perspective on, on prostitution. So when the, the, the model first came into uh, effect... It wasn't supported by the majority of the population, and even the police didn't really support the law. They just didn't understand it, and they didn't think it would work. Um, but as time went on, the the cops got on board, and they realized it really was a good law, and that it really was working, it was effective, and the population changed their minds. And so they see, you know, the majority of the population in Sweden now sees prostitution as a product of gender inequality, which is like pretty radical. Right. And, um, and since then, uh, the law has been enacted in other countries. Um, France, for example, in Canada, we have a sort of version of the, the Nordic model. We have um, criminalize the purchase of sex and, and decriminalize prostituted women. Um, I think we need to put more money into exiting services mm. though. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's the only model that's based on, you know, both feminism and, and socialism in my opinion. And it's the only model that says, you know, prostitution is not something that's good for women as a whole and that addresses male entitlement and says, you know, we don't believe men should have the right to buy women and girls. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't think that people should have the right to buy sex. People are not things to be bought and sold. Right, right. It's time for a break. You're listening to Number One Must Have by Slater Kinney. We'll dive further into the Nordic model and why it's not simply a full legalization of prostitution when Interchange returns in a moment.
welcome back to Interchange. We're speaking with Megan Murphy, who runs the online media outlet Feminist Current about radical or second wave feminism. In our next segment, more on the Scandinavian perspective on prostitution. We look at the uniquely coercive and violent nature of that particular transaction and the difference between decriminalizing prostitutes as a feminist position and legalization of the practice in general, the capitalist position. We'll close the segment with an example from our own backyard of the particularly unjust, still criminalized system we have in the U.S. Well, let me, uh, I'll read real quick uh, a comment about this. It's from uh, Gunilla Ekberg, special, mm-hmm. special advisor to the Swedish Division for Gender Equality in the Ministry of Industry, Employment, and Communications. She says, in Sweden, prostitution is officially acknowledged as a form of male sexual violence against women and children. One of the cornerstones of Swedish policies against prostitution and trafficking in human beings is the focus on the root cause, the recognition that without men's demand for and use of women and girls for sexual exploitation, the global prostitution industry would not be able to flourish and expand. So that's that's the basis of it there, the idea that it, it's a form of male sexual violence and that if not for the demand, the male demand for that sexual um, interaction, then there wouldn't be prostitution or there'd be some right. different form of something. I don't I don't know I don't know how how quite to go from from history I'm going to get, I don't want, I don't want to get off track here. I was trying to, trying to think, is there a period where sex is ever not just a dominant hierarchy uh, perspective in, in a marketplace, I suppose. I, I, I guess it's hard to think outside of that. Um, so this is where we get into trouble, I think, right? <laughs> right? Where we start to mm-hmm. try to understand what it means between uh, uh, partners, you know, what, what should sex be? And, and then trying to understand, well, this kind this kind of, of sex, which is for pay, is we're going to just define with a, a, bright, a bright line as um, a form of male sexual violence. Yeah, I mean, the thing about prostitution is that it's always coercive because, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that some women don't make choices to go into prostitution on their own accord, but it's still, you know, coercive. Most women in prostitution are poor brown women, most women in prostitution are in prostitution for lack of choice. Mm. Um, You know, here in Canada, indigenous women are overrepresented in prostitution. Um, The women who are on the streets on the downtown east side here in Vancouver, um, which is where Willie Picton famously, you know, murdered so many women. Um, the women who are down on the downtown east side are, I think it's fair to say, all suffering either from um, mental health issues and or addiction issues and, you know, often both. Uh, a lot of them are indigenous. All of them are poor. And while, sure, there, there are some women in the world who, you know, 
might be in a privileged position. It's not the situation for most women. And um, the fact of the matter is that those women wouldn't be in prostitution if they had other choices, better choices. And of course, they wouldn't be doing this if if men weren't there to to exploit their circumstances. Um, You know, like sex, if sex is something that's truly consensual, in an idealistic sense, in a feminist sense, then you don't need to pay somebody because if two people want to have sex, they just have sex. Um, the payment is is to coerce somebody who wouldn't otherwise have sex with you into having sex with you. Right. So, you know, that's why we call it um, male violence against women and sexual violence because, you know, we, as much as we as a society sort of like when we're talking about prostitution, we like to pretend like it's just purely a, a transaction or just any other service, like, you know, selling somebody a coffee or giving somebody a massage or something like that. We obviously do see sex as something different. You know, it's it's a vulnerable situation for women. You know, you're being penetrated by another person. You know, that is not the same as giving somebody a massage or mm-hmm. serving them a cup of coffee. And we obviously understand sex as something different or because if we didn't, we wouldn't see rape as something that was so serious. You know, we understand that rape is something traumatic for people um, and that it's a violation. So if we understand that, I sort of, I, I never really understand how people can argue that prostitution is no different than any other job because, you know, these women are still having sex with somebody, you know, or, you know, somebody is having sex with them who they wouldn't otherwise be engaging in a sexual act with they, you know, like if there was desire there, there wouldn't need to be an exchange of money. Mm-hmm. Well, so we do have to, um, I guess, define it in a way in which the the vulnerability, the sexual act itself, does stand outside of transactional space, right? Does stand outside of the way we characterize other money transactions. We are trying to do that here. We're saying that this, the consequences of this are such that the majority of women who who are selling uh, their body, sell, selling sex for money, are doing it out of a coercive situation that is different than other coercive situations because of the act itself, because of the vulnerability. Yeah, but I mean, also there's the thing that, like, you know, it's not that feminists think that it's okay to... You know, it's not that I think that this system wherein, (laughs) you know, there's a working class and they have to work for people who are in the upper class is a good system. Like, it's not like I think that other exploitation under capitalism is okay. You know, I'm opposed to capitalism as a whole. So often people will make that argument that they're like, oh, well, is it okay to exploit people in other forms of labor? And it's like, no, but, you know, as feminists, we're, we obviously prost- see prostitution as a particularly gendered phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But, and, you know, beyond that, you know, prostitution is particularly traumatic and particularly abusive mm-hmm. because it's because of the, the sex part. Right. And, um, you know, women in prostitution suffer from high rates of PTSD. Mm. Um, they often have backgrounds of abuse and are, you know, often, often, often abused in prostitution by Johns. 
Um, and those, you know, those kinds of situations aren't common in other forms of labor, despite the fact that the, those forms of labor might be exploitative. People aren't getting raped and sexually harassed and groped and, um, you know, abused at the same rates as, as women in prostitution. Right. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. We're speaking with Megan Murphy, who runs the online media outlet Feminist Current about radical feminism. Well, so how is it that we are arguing about uh, sort of uh, decriminalizing versus legalization? What is the difference? Uh, I, you know, I see these terminologies when I read, uh, you know, multiple sites about there's a fight between this uh, pro-prostitution uh, thing that now is sort of bandied around as a pimp lobby, and that seems problematic, obviously, in terms of how these became, become wars in which we say things that, that sort of create emotional responses for people. Um, what is the pro-prostitution angle of this that wants legalization? Uh, there is a, obviously a massive sex industry in this country. I wonder, you know, we're getting to that territory that, that crosses over from prostitution to pornography as well, or puts the two in the same space. Yeah, I mean, people who argue in favor of legalization... I feel like often they'll try to frame that as a uh, progressive position, but it's really just a pro-capitalist position, and mm -hmm. it's a it's a position that advocates for the the free market to kind of take care of everything, right. um, which we know doesn't work for marginalized people. Um, but you know, and they also they'll also compare it to <clears throat> drugs, right? They'll say you know, like criminalizing drugs doesn't help. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, women are drugs and right. we're not talking about, you know, I mean, it's a totally different sure. scenario. And we're talking about a class of people who's marginalized and who's being exploited by another class of people on like a really large scale. And we also know that legalization and full decriminalization doesn't work, you know, like the argument that it will keep women safer has been disproved. If we look to places like Germany and if we look to Amsterdam, um, women trafficking is, is, is huge there. Women are still being abused. Women are still being murdered. In Sweden, no woman has been murdered by a John since 99, since the Nordic model came into effect. Mm. Um, and, you know, in Germany, most of the women in prostitution are foreign. So there's still you know, they're being brought in there like women who are Roma, like they're super marginalized women who are being brought over and put into these brothels and, you know, barely allowed to even leave. They don't know anyone in Germany. They don't have no access to services. You know, no one's helping them out. And the cops aren't looking out for them because what is happening isn't illegal. It's legal. So, right. you know, what are the cops going to do? Why should they care? And, you know, they have these mega brothels in, in Germany and the women have to pay like, you know, like almost 200 euro to rent their rooms. And then, you know, men are charged 50 bucks for half an hour. So they have to see four men just to break even before they even start making money. You know, mm -hmm. like it's not this great lucrative system. Women aren't becoming empowered through prostitution at all. No, you know, they're still that's, poor. <laughs> that's an industrial model. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I mean, I, okay. I think that people have 
this idealistic vision of what will happen, but it's been disproved. So I sort of don't understand why they're they're still advocating for it personally. I mean, except I mean, I understand why they're advocating it if they're if they have ulterior motives, you know, like if they have financial interest and they're trying to profit off of the industry, right. of course. But they don't admit that that's the reason. So no, no one tends to admit <laughs> that's the reason, but it does seem to be the reason most of yeah. the time. Um, yeah, I don't like. I've been trying to understand a different ideological perspective. You know, who would agree that uh, legalizing it is, in a sense, industrializing it or making it, as you say, a, a thing in which we can have WalMarts of prostitution, uh, or even even looking at it as a, a hair salon where I have to rent my chair um, in order to give uh, give a haircut. Um, it's a similar kind of model. Obviously, not not the same thing but you know it's it's just sort of shoehorning this particular act and normalizing the act as a thing in which uh it's just another thing you go get you get your dry cleaning you get uh, you have sex and you pay for it and that's that it's just a service industry um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's important that they do call that into question right the the actual analysis be one against that capitalist model that neoliberal perspective as well that this again that's why i find it most encouraging in, in reading your work is to see that that it takes <laughs> on that particular model uh, and says you know this is not the way that a kinder gentler world behaves to each other this is not a socialist world this is a capitalist dominating um, world in which profit matters more than people. And this is really just probably the most uh, obvious example of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's if we're talking about creating a more ethical, equitable world, which we should be in progressive movements, I mean, that's that's the whole point. Then I don't understand how we can argue that it's okay for, for men to pay for access to women women who are who are desperate and and who are marginalized it's just you know we can't treat humans as objects and also treat humans with humanity you know those two ideas don't don't fit together yeah it's it's always been problematic i've not been able to understand it myself um it's a hard thing to discuss we had a local story here uh back in march where uh, police arrested a 14 year old girl for prostitution um the story was was full of strangenesses i think one in particular that the 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 girl was sort of tracked basically by uh warrants for her facebook pages and whatnot because a man's wife saw uh messages on his cell phone from mm. a girl and actually i guess reported it to the police which was strange in and of itself you know i the story doesn't of course give me all the details um it just seemed like an odd thing that would happen but at the same time the police arrest the girl, I think, for a misdemeanor. But the question, you know, obviously the question comes up there. This is a 14-year-old uh, soliciting sex on uh, on Facebook or the Internet. This is all the information I have on the story. <laughs> so I have to try to understand what happened there. What are, what are we doing for that situation? You know, what do we arrest that girl? Is there a reason to arrest her for that? Is there, do we, you know, should we be looking into helping whatever is causing that to happen. A 14-year-old girl is obviously well below the age of consent in Indiana, at least, um, which is, uh, I think, 16 in this state. Uh, so there's there's just a lot happening in that particular story. But it was it was interesting that it, that it sort of came up in that new world uh, Facebook kind of way. 
Yeah, it's that's super strange, and I hadn't read that story, so I'm not familiar with it exactly. And I know that the laws in in the states change from state to state, so it's hard to speak mm-hmm. about the the laws, the prostitution laws in the states as a whole. But I mean, the idea that, that anyone who's in prostitution, particularly minors, should be criminalized mm-hmm. for selling sex is nuts, and it it prevents women from leaving the industry, right? Because so many women in prostitution end up with criminal records right? and then they try to leave and they can't get jobs. Right. You know, like there's women that I know who still have criminal records and they exited decades ago and it still, it still hurts their ability to work. I mean, it's a totally messed up system and you know, these, these girls are victims of exploitation by men and the fact that she would be charged with anything just blows my mind. Right. It's time for another break. You're listening to She Used to Want to Be a Ballerina by Buffy St. Marie. More interchange with our guest Megan Murphy after this. Welcome back to Interchange. We're speaking with Megan Murphy, founder and editor of the online site Feminist Current. In our last segment, we'll take on pornography, ubiquitous in our modern internet-dominated world and thus normalized. Murphy talks us through how anti-pornography feminists have been tarred with supposedly being anti-sex, as their critics unaccountably conflate pornography with masturbation and argue for its health benefits. A new generation of boys and girls are exposed to online pornography early in life, and thus learn what sex is from an industry dominated by and explicitly built to serve selfish, anti-humanistic impulses. Meanwhile, Murphy charges that the individualized, faux-progressive, feel-good politics of liberal third-way feminists essentially gives a fundamentally misogynist industry a pass. So let's move a little bit into pornography. Again, I think this is the same. I think we we have to sort of focus on the culture as a whole at this point where you might have been able to say one or another thing about pornography through the years or uh, uh, the way in, in which we represent sex in moving pictures or on clay tablets or uh, whatnot. I think we've moved into a world in which things are much different. Uh, than that, and and you can't have the same discussion you might have had in 1919 that you would have now in terms of how uh, sexual images of of often I assume primarily domination, um, male fantasies, situations, and a, an industry dominated by a male perspective, if not just a male industry. Um, has really just sort of exploded with, uh, I guess, the way we we live our lives now online. Yeah, I mean, it's become totally normalized, and it's mm-hmm. 
it's said to be totally normal and natural. You know, we're told all men watch porn. It's normal. You know, the thing about porn is that, and and that that line that says, oh, it's normal and natural and all men do it, is that pornography has been fully conflated with masturbation. So mm. if as a feminist or, you know, if anybody, if you speak out against pornography, um, people th- think that you're speaking out against masturbation. Mm. <laughs> so they think that you're speaking out against sex. And that's not the case. You know, no feminist is against masturbation. But, you know, the fact that we as a society believe that men are incapable of masturbating without watching (laughs) some woman being abused or, you know, like exploited really says a lot. Mm. Um, but it, you know, it's also like a really, it's a really, um, successful manipulation on, on the parts of pro industry people to pretend as though feminists who oppose pornography are anti-sex or anti-masturbation. Like, you know, that we're just prudish Mm. When, in fact, you know, the kind of sex that's shown in pornography for the most part is not, you know, pro-woman by any means. It's not even pro-sex. Right. You know, like it's totally male-centered. Often the sex acts are are painful for the woman, or at least they would be sex acts that a woman wouldn't necessarily or most women wouldn't enjoy. Um, It's totally focused on male ejaculation, right? Mm. And often it includes, often it's racist, you know, porn is categorized by race. Right. Um, and often men will say all sorts of misogynist things to the woman. And um, and then, of course, there's, there's real legitimate violence and... and um, abuse that's going on also. Right. Uh, it's often spoken of, too, in terms of how how prevalent it is and how now, you, you know, with a click of a button, you or even the, the errant use of a particular term in a search bar will get you all sorts of images that as a, as a young person, perhaps a young child even, um, is, is like, as you say, begins, begins to be normalized to these images. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't even avoid it. You yeah. really can't. Like, I don't think that you can possibly avoid pornography right. um, in North America if you go online. <laughs> yeah. And in the past, you know, like in the 70s, pornography was just, it was harder to come to. Like for boys, um, for teenagers, they'd have to kind of secret out, se- seek it out or um, kind of come upon it accidentally, you know, right. like accidentally find like a magazine hidden somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, things have really changed and boys and even girls, too. But mostly boys are, are starting to watch pornography when they're quite young, you know, even at like 11 years old. But at least, you know, probably most boys have seen pornography by the time they're, you know, like 16, 17 years old. And so this is what they're learning about women and this is what they're learning about sex and this is what they're learning um, about, you know, what what women are for and what women like and how you should treat a woman. And it's super disturbing. And they're, you know, learning that sex is, you know, transactional. Sex is a thing that you just acquire and it doesn't have anything to do with the other person 
Yeah. It's just something you use for your own benefit, for your own pleasure. Yeah. That's, you know, that again sits right in the middle of, and again, I don't know how these things are historical. I say this, this fits in a neoliberal perspective and I don't want to keep using that word. I'm not sure what else to use, but the idea that all things revolve around the self and its pleasure. Um, and that every, yeah, and anything you know. that's pleasurable and right. anything that, that makes you feel good is necessarily ethical. Right. You know, it's right. like, it's like capitalism replaces ethics or like right. individualism replaces ethics. Like it's, you know, like it's sort of a, it's a, a hedonistic kind of attitude, right? Like me, 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 anything I want, anything that I like is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So that that obviously becomes uh, another another point to think about, uh, uh, and again, I think it's it's spoken about quite quite a bit in these particular circles. The idea of the individual versus a collective understanding of how we manage ourselves, organize ourselves, socialize ourselves. You know, a, a way in which we get together and we we be people together rather than be objects for each other. Yeah, and that's something that's just been totally lost as as you say neoliberalism has sort of taken over. Um and we, yeah, we aren't we aren't looking at these issues in terms of what's good for even feminists or self-described feminists, I should say, particularly in the US, it's particularly bad in America, I should say, but you know, we aren't looking at this in terms of what's good for all women. So when we're talking about um, you know, individualizing these kinds of issues like prostitution and pornography has been really successful because it's prevented us from being able to have the conversation that we want to be having and the conversation that we should be having as progressives and feminists, which is what is good for society, what is good for all women, what kinds of ethics drive our politics. Instead, we're talking about what did this one woman say? What does this one woman feel? What about her individual personal choice? What about her personal empowerment? What about this individual man and what he wants and what he feels? You know, that's not, that's not what we should be talking about. And it's not to say that people's individual and personal experiences don't matter, but it's that those individual personal experiences cannot possibly drive our politics. We're never going to get anywhere with those kinds of arguments. And that's not the point. That's not how you upend a system. That's not how you address a systemic oppression um, by talking about, you know, like what if somebody said, oh, you know, well, this person enjoyed slavery. They like it. So it's okay. Well, that was an argument, right? That it was better for for the slave. Uh, And they were certainly happy. Yeah. 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 I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. We're speaking with Megan Murphy, who runs the online media outlet Feminist Current about radical feminism. I hear, I you know, of course. Uh, so, so what is the thing that you do? Obviously, you write and talk about it, and and podcast, and you try to encourage, I guess, by by doing these kinds of things, by by highlighting particular authors and arguments that you're you're seeking to, I guess, keep a particular dialogue going. But where is their movement? in the world at large, you know, as, as we continue to be, be uh, floundering here in the United States anyway, in terms of our political culture, our economic culture, as we keep going in the, the wrong direction, I don't, I don't see a lot of ways to turn, turn, in, uh, uh, turn, turn my frown upside down in this particular mm-hmm. situation. What, what can we be doing? Uh, obviously, we need to, to work at an individual level to, to you know, 
to talk to each other about these things, but are there other things that, that the culture that we, that we would, that work within the culture might want to try to do? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the progress that we've made in terms of the Nordic model is really positive because Mm -hmm. like I said, you know, like not only does it have an effect on actual men who are buying sex, but it also has that effect on a social level where it changes our minds in terms of what we think about women and, and how we treat women. Mm -hmm. And that's important, you know, so there's those kinds of laws that we can work towards. I think that we need to do everything, you know, I think education is important. I think that speaking out is important. I think that talking to our friends and colleagues is important. Um, cause I think that, and, and, you know, obviously advocating towards feminist legislation is important. Um, but, and, you know, also, you know, advocating for all those other things like better welfare rates and stronger social security nets and things like that, that will also support women. Um, because poverty is, is a huge part of this. Um, also, but I, you know, like, I think that, I think that we can be doing everything, supporting feminist organizations, supporting feminist transition houses, you know, it's been a real struggle for, for, for women's organizations and, and feminist organizations to stay alive in recent decades as, as fundings cut um, across the board. But, you know, those kinds of organizations are, are important because they can enact change and they can serve as um, educational bodies. And so I think that we need to we need to focus on or we need to support things like transition houses and, and women's services. But... Mm-hmm but also support, um, you know, advocate for new laws, right? like the Nordic model. Right. Well, uh, other than reading your website, Feminist Current, do you have particular, uh, particular authors or books or movies or things that you think, well, here's a good, a good primer, and you probably have a, a, a post on the site that tells me, you know, the 10 things that you should do to become a radical feminist, perhaps, but um, are there, is there a, per, a particular thing you think this this would help you start to change your mind if you didn't think this way already um (laughs) is that a big question or this is it is a big question but i was laughing at my own answer because i think it's uh, (laughs) sort of i i wish that it weren't my answer in some ways but um the, the I, I interviewed Robert Jensen recently mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on my podcast, and he just published a book called The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. And so I'm laughing because I really, I, I, I don't like that I'm recommending a male author. Yeah. <laughs> he's been He's been doing good work for a while, though. But I mean, well, what he's done with this particular book is that, that it's brand new and it's actually, it says radical feminism for men, but it's not really about radical feminism for men. I, I just found it to be a really good radical feminism 101 kind of book. Right, um, right. So I think that it's useful because it introduces arguments against prostitution. It introduces arguments around um, gender identity and trans activism that that sort of need to be challenged right now in mm. my opinion it talks about pornography um so i actually think that it's a good you know like current kind of primer on mm-hmm. on radical feminism and then you know beyond that there's rachel moran wrote a, a book called paid for which is one of the best books ever written on prostitution in mm-hmm. my opinion and um really makes makes a really strong argument against the system of prostitution. She she survived prostitution herself. She was prostituted in Dublin um, when she was a teenager and young woman. 
Um, and she's a really strong advocate uh, right now. And so I'd recommend that one for, mm. for learning more about prostitution. Um, and there's another woman, a Swedish woman named, um, uh, I always pronounce her name wrong, but Kaisa Ekis Ekman. Mm-hmm. Um, and her book is called Being and Being Bought. And so she talks about the Swedish model and mm-hmm. so how that law came about and the research that happened before the law was enacted and you know how the law works and 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 uh, really really does a really good job of explaining arguments against prostitution and addresses um, arguments in favor of legalization and decriminalization so that's another another good one as well uh, thank you Megan Murphy for joining me on interchange thank you so much for having me it's been great to talk with you That's it for Interchange. Thanks to Megan Murphy, founder and editor of Feminist Current, for speaking with me. You're listening to Don't Put Her Down, You Helped Put Her There by Hazel Dickens. You pull the string, she's your plaything. You can make her or break her, it's true. Next time on Interchange, protest or pose, the sound of resistance. I'm joined by American Studies professor and DJ Rasul Mowat, to discuss the ways certain songs are actually a part of specific social initiatives, think Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, born of specific issues like Gil Scott Heron's We Almost Lost Detroit, or perhaps like T.I.'s War Zone, can best be described as commercially viable market opportunities. Protester Pose, The Sound of Resistance, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, Jennifer Brooks is board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. the house down the way